0: Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Oneet Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on HighTruths.com. To learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for Naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor give us a five star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. This High Truths podcast is sponsored by NMI, the National Marijuana Initiative. NMI strives to dispel misconceptions about marijuana and raise awareness of the issues surrounding the drug so that citizens and policymakers can make well-informed choices regarding marijuana use and regulations. Learn more about NMI at thenmi.org. Hello, hello, everyone. I always get a nice, nice, Dopamine surge when I join you for high-truths conversations. Get ready to meet another rock star of addiction medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Oneet Lev. Today, I want to share with you the Dunedin study. The study followed 1,037 babies born in New Zealand between April 1972 and March 1973. Teams of international collaborators evaluated these study children at age 3, 5, 7, 9, and periodically until most recently at age 45. Wherever these Dunedin subjects were in the world, they were brought back to New Zealand for interviews, physical exams, dental exams, blood tests, and surveys. This is an unprecedented longitudinal study. And they did a remarkable job at retaining engagement. At age 45, 94% of all living study members participated. And results from the ongoing Dunedin study has produced over 1,300 publications. One of those publications addressed cannabis use. Neuropsychological testing was conducted at age 13 before cannabis use and at age 38 after a pattern of persistent cannabis use. The results showed that people who had persistent cannabis use had neuropsychological decline, cognitive decline, and impaired concentration compared to those who did not use cannabis. And the scary part is that cessation of cannabis did not fully restore neuropsychological functioning when cannabis started during teens. The neurotoxic effects of cannabis on the growing brain highlights the importance of prevention and protecting that growing brain. This study was published by Dr. Madeline Meyer in 2012 from Duke University, one of the Dunedin Study Collaborating Institutions. And with that, we'll hear our question of the day. Hi, my name is Sarah. I have two kids ages 10 and 7. Thank you for the High Truth podcast and opportunity to ask a question. I realize kids may get involved with drugs and encounter them at school. At what age should I mention drugs to my kids? And what is the best way to teach them to avoid drugs? Thank you, Sarah. You are correct that kids hear about drugs at school, but also from family and friends on TV and the internet and music It'd be very difficult to completely shield them. Let's get an answer to your very important question from a nationally recognized pediatric expert, Dr. Sharon Levy. Dr. Sharon Levy is a developmental behavioral pediatrician, addiction medicine specialist, director of the Adolescent Substance Use and Addiction Program at Boston Children's Hospital, and associate professor at Harvard Medical School. Over the past 20 years, she has evaluated and treated thousands of young people with substance use disorders, and she has written extensively on the topic. In 2016, she established the nation's first Pediatric Addiction Medicine Fellowship training program. She has expertise in the integration of substance use treatment services into pediatric primary care. And you can find Dr. Sharon Levy's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Sharon Levy, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. Uh, I'm so excited for our conversation. I I consider you one of our nation's, and maybe even the world's, leading pediatric addiction specialists.
1: Oh, thank you very much.
0: And uh, we met at the White House. How cool is that? I don't know right. if you remember. Yeah.
1: Oh, I absolutely remember. That was a very
0: big day, a very special event. Yeah, we had an addiction medicine event, in the White House, you know, the White House doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't create a program. It elevates an issue. So we were elevating the issue of addiction medicine fellowships. And you have the very first fellowship in addiction medicine for pediatrics. And and you were one of our, our guest speakers.
1: That's right. And we have a very uh, strong program where we have three fellows this year. Um, And uh, we have a lot of people applying to it. We have a lot of excitement about it. So I really appreciate uh, being recognized for that. That's awesome.
0: Um, So let's start with the the question we have of the day. Uh, Perfect question for you. Sarah is a mom of two kids, seven years old and 10 years old. And she's asking, um, at what age should she start talking to her kids about drugs?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question, question that I get asked a lot. Um, What I would tell her is that uh, your kids will start seeing things and noticing things like cigarettes and alcohol when they're very young, and they may even ask you questions about it, or you may have a shared experience where you see an alcohol advertisement on a billboard or something like that. And I would encourage uh, parents to, uh, certainly if a child asks questions about it, um, to answer them honestly, I would not avoid the topic. Right, if a child's noticing, I would just answer the questions. And um, if sometimes there are moments where you can bring it up, like somebody is smoking and you're with you together out on a, a street, you're waiting for a bus and you see somebody smoking, and there's an opportunity to really uh, to really talk about that. Um, you know, the child's noticing as well, and you can um, tell the child. I, Obviously, you want to do this in a way where it's discreet, not in front of the person who's, who's doing it. Um, but you can start telling your child what cigarettes are, why people use them and how they're addictive. And one thing I always caution parents is that uh, that. Uh, we want to talk about the behavior. This is a really unhealthy unbe- behavior. We don't want to stigmatize the person. Um, it, you know, a lot of people who smoke cigarettes are in fact addicted to nicotine. It's very hard for them to stop. So we don't want to. We don't want to call them out as being a bad person. We want to uh, talk about this is an unhealthy behavior, and um, it, it, we it, and ask them not to do it.
0: Very good advice. And you say, don't call it out unless you kind of see your kids are being curious about it or go or or make a point of it.
1: Well, you know, I I think that parents find their way and what seems uh, comfortable at a certain point, if you haven't had the opportunity to have the question to to have these uh, discussions when the children are younger, you know, certainly by the time kids are getting into middle school, it's time to have the conversation. Certainly, if you haven't had it before. So at that point, Um, I would encourage you to ask your children what they know about substances, what their thoughts are about them. And there's also uh, parents often find that the easiest way is with a shared experience. And that could be a story in the newspaper or that you hear on the radio together or any time that this really comes up. It's not hard to look for those Um, alcohol and drinking and, and cigarette use and in many states, Um, cannabis use they come up all the time and so um it's often easier to start with that shared experience um this is a good way to bring it up without a child feeling like you're uh, pressuring them or without a child feeling uncomfortable you know
0: there was a just an article in the wall street journal um uh, talking about marijuana and candy, and they and and the author said that at age nine is the time to have that that kind of conversation. What do you think?
1: Well, I think it's a reasonable conversation to have uh, with elementary school children. Um, you know, I think that parents have good instincts on this. Very often, certainly, if these things are coming up, um, you should absolutely discuss them. I think it's a question of. If it hasn't really crossed your radar screen and you have a child who's in second or third grade, do you really need to to bring it up? You know, I think it's up to a parent and they know their children best. They know if their children are curious, if their children are shy, if their children are uh, having more independence, they'll have a sense of when to do that. Yeah.
0: So Sarah's other question is, what's the best way to protect her kids from getting into drugs?
1: Yeah, so that's also a really, really important question. So thank you, Sarah, for asking it. Um, So it's really, really important that parents be very clear um, that their children do not have their permission to use alcohol, cigarettes, tobacco, vapes, cannabis, or any other drug, right? Um, That almost sounds like too easy an answer, right? And a lot of parents think that their children automatically understand that. Um, but I can tell you, having worked in the field of pediatric addiction medicine for years and years, um, that parents and kids are often are not communicating clearly on that. Okay. Now, um, the most easy way to say it is just say it explicitly, right? So it's like, in our house, we don't allow cigarettes. We don't allow drinking for, for underage people, Um Use those words and make sure they're clear. And as kids get older, it gets much more important um, that you set those boundaries and hold them firmly, lovingly and firmly. Uh, I can tell you that um, I, I can't count the number of times that I've had a, a patient come into the substance use disorders program. And when I ask, tell me, what do your parents think about your alcohol use? And the child will say, Well, you know, of course my parents don't like it, but they feel like as long as I don't get in trouble with it, it's okay, it's normal, you know. And then I ask the parent the very same question, and they say, no, I don't allow alcohol use. So obviously there's been a failure of communication. Whatever the parents were saying, the kids were not taking away the message that the parents were trying to deliver. And this is really, really, really important. We did a study a number of years ago where we went into... um, middle schools and high schools across Massachusetts and we asked kids, we gave kids a big survey and one of the questions on there was um, about what their parents thought about um, teen drinking and then it was a multiple choice question. The kids could select a number of different responses and it was everything from my parents object to teen drinking, they don't allow teen drinking, uh, through my two parents have different opinions, my parents um, don't care very much. My parents think it's okay if I don't get in trouble. They had like a number of choices to, to choose from. Out of about 5,000 kids that we asked that question, uh, the vast majority of them told us, my parents uh, don't approve of teen drinking. So that was the good news. Most of them got that message. There was a small segment of kids, I think about 10%, who gave one of the other answers. And I can tell you that the kids who gave any other answer were far more likely to report having drank in the past year than the kids who said my parents disapproved. So these things go together. This is really meaningful. It's just a very simple thing, but it uh, to to communicate this clearly. But it really does make a difference in your child's uh, behavior. And you know, I'll tell you that uh, I would encourage parents if your child, especially high school age child, comes to you and says mom, dad, can I go to a party with my friends tonight? I would encourage you to say, uh, well, you can have my permission to go as long as you can promise me that you won't drink or vape or use other drugs. And have that conversation before you give the permission to go. That's really the time to have it. That sets very clear expectations.
0: Yeah, I think my. Uh, you take me back to when my kids were in in high school, and they said that they had the strictest parents because I said like you know no parties or or at our house because <laughs> I didn't I didn't know I didn't trust I didn't think there was such a thing as a high school party without alcohol and 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 and, and things like that.
1: And and you know it's obviously very common to have high school parties with alcohol, right? Because. Um, they've become something in the culture. Um, and you'll you'll see they tend to be at the same few houses, right? They rotate around the few houses where the parents are actually allowing it. You know, I would always encourage parents, you know, you want to give your permission, your kids permission to be with their friends. Um, and so, you know, if your kid is otherwise doing well, you might decide, well, you can go. Uh, as long as you promise me that you're not going to drink. You can't be responsible for other people's behavior, um, but I want you to make a promise to me that you won't uh, drink. Um, it, you know, it's really important because those context is really everything when it comes to high school drinking. And I, it, it, we know that 90% of all alcohol consumed by underage drinkers is is in the form of a binge. It's part of a binge. It's just I'm going to say that again. Ninety percent of all alcohol consumed is part of it. But it is essentially the only way that young people drink, right? Context is everything. So, you know, parents will say to me, "Well, you know, but my kid knows to have only one drink, and isn't that okay?" I, you know, it, the the reality is, um, in the context of a teen party, um, it, really, you can expect that most, if not all, of the kids. Um, who drink will be binge drinking, and that's a very dangerous pattern, right? It's it, it, it's associated with lots and lots of problems that I won't reel off now, um, but um, the it's it's very hard for it. Teen to moderate drinking—it's physiologically difficult, right? Because um, you know, in that stage of brain development, the brain is telling things to telling kids to do really extreme things. So it's it's physiologically difficult to restrain. And then when you're in the context of lots of other kids drinking and encouraging each other, um, it, it's uh, teen drinking parties are actually pretty dangerous situations. So you know, although they are. Unfortunately, it's not hard to find them. Um, It's really uh, important, especially in that context, uh, to discourage your kids from uh, from drinking there.
0: You know, our our the community where I live made a a really they have strong laws about that, and they hold parents liable. We had a dad go to jail when people passed out in front of his you know lawn during a a high school party. So that really sent a message to parents that they're they're responsible. They can't just be in the back room and let, you know, do things. If something
1: happens, they're, they're liable. Yeah. You know, I think that parents who decide to host these parties, it's always with the best of intentions, right? And I've heard a lot of parents say, well, you know, this way I could take away everybody's car keys and I can make sure everybody's safe. And it, it it sounds like it's a good idea. Unfortunately, it just doesn't work. And every year, you can read in the newspapers. There's always, a, you know, one or two uh, teenagers in the country who die because they were at a, a party where a parent took away the the keys. But you know, it was cold outside. Somebody died of exposure, or somebody wandered into the local lake and or pond and drowned. There were always these terrible tragedies, and there's really no way for a parent to protect. A group of kids who are drinking heavily it's it's not really possible for a parent to do that so the the uh, the only way to uh to protect kids is really to prevent those situations
0: that's great and i want to ask you um sharon about terminology um i've advised people not to use the word teen and adolescent which is very common and this is a perfect question for you because you know, kids in high school or, you know, my kids in college, and you know, daughters in the military, 21 years old, they don't consider themselves a teen or adolescent, but their brain is not done growing. Their brain is done growing. The science age is 25 or even 27. So I try to avoid the term teen and adolescent because I feel like it, um, kids in high school, do not they don't consider themselves that. And definitely kids in college don't consider themselves that. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that that's a, a, a good question. Um, certainly when we're designing materials that are going to be facing the the students themselves, uh, we th- may think carefully about those words because we do want them to see themselves in our prevention messages and in the kinds of materials that we're producing for them. So I think that that's a good point. Um, you know, it's the terminology can get you a little back down, but so sometimes it, 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 you know, people may substitute the, the you know, youth or young people. And I think that that's um, that's a point well taken, uh, you know, particularly when you're addressing uh, the students themselves.
0: Yeah, I, I think the the Surgeon General did an advisory, and I asked him not to use the word adolescent because I felt I thought we were going to like miss a group of people by by saying that word, um, um, especially college age kids who are who you know also saw a lot of the the binge and and drug use starts there, and then we're we're losing them with if we use that adolescent message. Um, I, I just I like twenty five. Keep them alive till twenty five at least, you know. For my kids, it was 27, but, but if we could, like, get the 25 age. I know the legal age, you know, and I know you work with Dr. DuPont, like, like the legal age is 21, and that's, that's fine for the lawyers, um, but for us as, as doctors, I think we should stick to
1: 25. Uh, no, I agree with you. I mean, the, um, the science, I mean, science and policy are not always the same thing, right? Policy should be based on science, but it's, it, it, you know, there's always a give and take when you're writing policy, right? So the science would say best if you can, uh, uh, prevent people from using any of these substances until after their 25th birthday. I think there's no question about that really. Um, and so, so I think your point is really a very good one. Um, and, um, Yeah, I think it's surprising to people that actually the brain does continue to grow and develop and it's thought to be finished somewhere uh, around age 25. If you look at data from uh, SAMHSA, so the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, right? so this is data collected by the government, you can see that by the time somebody's crossed their uh, 25th birthday, their likelihood of ever initiating... The use of any of a particular substance is less than much less than 1%. So if you haven't started using something by your 25th birthday. Chances are you will never start using it that's also a very striking piece of information right that the interest in. And and you know,
0: you know who knows that statistic more than anybody. The, <laughs> the alcohol industry. <laughs> absolutely. The, the <laughs> the they know industry that. Yeah, they gotta <laughs> the, the flip
1: side of that is like who is who is using all of these drugs? Who start where does it all start? That's and right. the answer is in middle school and high school for sure. Because they want a customer
0: for life. So they gotta they got a window there where they need to get someone hooked and then they and then that's better for business.
1: Oh addiction is a beautiful business model if you can do it.
0: Yeah. Um do you work with other pediatricians, not addiction pediatricians, but uh, in the community? Because um, this tender age is, I mean, it's the most important thing we could do in prevention for our country is to to, to reach kids and, and, and prevent young drug use. If we did that one thing, just that one thing, uh, we would have less a- addiction, period. Um, so, you know, how involved is the pediatric community in and I know that you have anticipatory guidelines, but to get the message out on the protecting the, the growing brain.
1: So a lot of work has been done over the past 20 or 25 years. I think the American Academy of Pediatrics has done a really great job in leading the charge. Um, they recommend screening all uh, young people for uh, substance use, um, giving uh, and intervening when you uh, you identify it. But also for kids who are not using um, to really give uh, prevention messages, because uh, we also know from research that those even very brief prevention messages when they're given by a healthcare provider, they carry weight with the kids. They do impact kids behavior. I mean, think about it like this. Our kids are bathing all day. In lots of messages that you can see on TV, that you can see on YouTube, that you can that you hear all over, that encourage them uh, that when they uh, that that um, using alcohol, using cannabis, these are great ways to relax. These are great ways when you're feeling stressed, you should drink. When you want to celebrate, you should drink. When you're feeling good, you should drink. When you're feeling bad, you should drink. I, you know that this is what the advertising and the popular culture will will say, and the kids are living in this. They're swimming in this ocean twenty four hours a day, right? So we have very few opportunities, and it's really incumbent upon parents to make their uh, their thoughts and their rules clear, and also healthcare professionals in the same regard. Just um, just a couple of minutes, just a couple of words of you know, this really isn't good for your brain. It's not good for your development, and uh, you know it's it's a very important piece of what we call primary prevention, right? So, um, preventing kids from ever starting using substances in the first place.
0: What you mentioned screening, which is very important. What is the role of drug testing in kids? Like we we routinely use it if you. You have an addiction problem for 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 screening. Um, have you seen it used as a prevention tool?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of debate around whether um, urine drug testing or or biological drug testing is a, a good prevention tool for universal prevention. There's there's still some debate about it. I think most experts in the field uh, feel like it's uh, better reserved for certain circumstances. So certainly as you mentioned kids who are in treatment for substance use disorders yeah, uh, laboratory testing can be very very helpful for them right That's a different category. Um, it also may be helpful for kids who's who are having um, behavior problems or new emotional problems when there's some, perhaps thought that maybe substance use isn't involved and th- and there's no history to support that so for example a kid who suddenly appears depressed or whose uh, demeanor changes whose functioning somehow changes particularly if that's in uh in in the context of being found with drugs or paraphernalia in their possession and the child is saying yeah i i uh, I'm not using, you know, I'm holding this for a friend. You know, that's that's the kind of context where you're really worried and trying to make a diagnosis and understand, you know, what's really behind the changes that you're seeing in a young person. That's, that's a potential indication, uh, for example, of where drug testing might be uh, really helpful, um, you know, just to narrow down the differential diagnosis. As a universal strategy, I, people have tried it in schools and uh, in, on, on sports teams you know, on school sports teams and things like that. And I would say the results have not been particularly impressive. Um, the reality is for most kids who use substances sporadically, most of the time you test them, their drug test will be completely negative. And, you know, I can drug test they, somebody- They study,
0: they study for the test.
1: Uh, yeah, right, I mean, they might practice for it. I, if you were drinking last Saturday and I drug test you today on Friday morning, I'm gonna get a negative drug test even if I test for alcohol right so you know not sure how helpful that is and that's probably one of the reasons that it's it it it's it's probably it, it's probably not certainly not worth the money uh, for a universal prevention it is really expensive, especially if you want to do it well. I think the results have been really questionable, especially in the context uh Of how well we think just asking kids works, right? So, um, you know, there's been there's more and more research that screening and giving advice or uh, intervention for some kids who've already started using. um, There's more and more evidence that actually uh, that can really impact uh, kids' behavior. So there was a study done by a colleague uh, out in California at Kaiser Permanente, and. Uh, They implemented screening and brief intervention in in, uh, half of their clinics, not the other half. And here's the really interesting finding. When they followed the kids out, they had to go out three years. But three years later, the kids who who were getting care in the sites that were routinely doing screening and brief intervention, they had a lower risk of having a substance use disorder compared to the kids who didn't. So those are really interesting findings. It shows you that this is really promising. It's something simple and it, it really looks like it works. Um, it also is really interesting because this is something that we call the prevention paradox. It actually took three years to see the difference, right? Um, and I, I think if you think about what happens when kids are using substances in the high school years, they often start and then the typical Pattern is that they use more heavily, more frequently, and more intensely as they get older. And and for many of those kids, that's going to put them on a trajectory that's going to bring them to a substance use disorder. If we can actually just bend that trajectory a little bit, we may actually get them to 25 without hitting that that level of a, of a, a disorder, right? And so even sometimes those incremental changes, you know, this is... This is the challenge of trying to study prevention is because you you might be looking at very small changes, but multiplied over a population and over a long period of time and just bending those trajectories might actually make a big difference at a population level and also in the lives of the kids who for whom the messaging really um, had an impact. Even a relatively small one, if we can prevent somebody from developing a substance use disorder and alive till 25, as, as you said, um, you know that that uh, really can uh, that really can be absolutely life changing.
0: Yeah, uh, that is a very good point. That, that's a great study. Um, you know, I heard you in a recent presentation for Isaac, the International Academy of Science and Impacted Cannabis, and um, on, I mean, you said amazing things in, in that and showed a lot of literature. One of them is the actual brain size of the hippocampus, go, how it goes down with marijuana use. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so, um, so uh, well, THC, which is the active ingredient in cannabis, the psychoactive ingredient, right? Um, it, what it does physiologically is it it binds to a receptor on neurons in the brain, um and it prevents the cell from communicating with its neighbors. So what it's doing is it's actually quieting the cell down. And it, you know we think that that's really important uh, uh, for development because it's the cells that are uh, being very quiet that uh, are the ones that the will be, Pruned away as the brain develops. Right, we don't keep all of the cells that we have at the maximum uh, at, at the maximum density. Part of growing up is actually removing the cells that we're not using. So there's a concern that when we're us- when kids are using cannabis during some of these vulnerable periods, um, that they're interfering with this process. Now there have been a lot of different studies with a lot of different results, but I think the current thinking in the slide that I showed for uh, Isaac. Uh, shows that uh, there's uh, the more uh, the more cannabis that's used. So the more THC that an individual has been exposed to the smaller, the hippocampal size in in general, that's, that's a really um, important finding. We know the hippocampus is important for long-term memory formation and for learning. Um, And we certainly know that people who use cannabis during their adolescence have worse functional outcomes, right? they're, they're, they're much more likely to be what we might call underachievers, right? Not finish as much school, you know, not have uh, you know work at a lower level job than, than you might have predicted when they were younger, have less likely to establish a family. All of those outcomes of a healthy adulthood are happen uh, less in people who are using cannabis during their adolescence. And so you know all of this really kind of fits together. Yeah, interesting.
0: What about IQ? There is some. Um, what's uh, the growing, the current thought about IQ losing eight points from from cannabis use?
1: Yeah, so uh, a a big study that was done in New Zealand. It's a little bit old now. It was done uh, in the early two thousands. Uh, recruited. Uh, a number of uh, kids I think about a thousand when they were 13 years old and followed them over time and every couple of years when they checked in on them um, they asked them about whether they were using cannabis and if so how much and they also gave them an IQ test and what they found when these people hit the age of 38 is that the that the people who reported using cannabis frequently during their adolescence their IQ actually dropped uh, over that 25-year span, whereas the people who uh, were not using cannabis at all or who were using to lesser extents, um, they didn't see those drops. So, you know, that was an association, but it's a really important one. And, you know, when I see an association like that, especially when we know that hippocampal size can be smaller, when we have a piece of hypothesis, when we start putting all this information together, and then we see an association like that, to me, that's a signal that we need to dig deeper. So I'm happy to say that the National Institute of Health has uh, funded a study, I think it's been going on for about five years now, um, where it'll look very much like the the study from New Zealand, except that it's bigger. They are recruiting uh, a couple thousand kids, I think maybe 10,000 kids. They started uh, younger, so the kids were 10 years old when they came into the study, and they're also looking at Uh, MRI scans so they can see images of the brain as well. So it's another longitudinal cohort, but a bigger one um, with uh, taking away the lessons learned from that first study. So I think we'll be seeing more information and we'll be knowing more about that in the coming years.
0: So you're comparing, and our high truth listeners uh, already got the little brief, you're talking about the, um, the Dunedin study from New Zealand. That that's going on now almost 45, 45 years, and they actually did an amazing job, like over 90% of everybody who was in the study, 1,000 people, and I think you're comparing it to the NIH study. It's called, the, isn't it the ABC? Correct. Yeah, and are you guys part of that?
1: No, we're not participating in that.
0: Okay, and do you know how many people are in
1: that ABC study? I think the goal was to recruit 10,000 people across the country. So they wanted a really varied sample. Uh, They wanted the most representative sample that they could possibly recruit. So I believe that all of the sites are recruiting out of schools.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. yeah, of course they had to get more. I mean, New Zealand got a thousand, so the United States should get more.
1: (laughs) That's right. (laughs)
0: Um, What about mental health? What What are you seeing as, as far as a, a, a addiction pediatrician and and the
1: overlap of substance use and mental health. Yeah, so I, I think here is where. Uh, the impact of cannabis, the, the causal role of, of THC and cannabis is the most clear. Uh, so I think that there's a consensus now among the addiction community and the scientific community uh, that um, cannabis has a role in causing um, thought disorders or conditions like schizophrenia and um, in in people who use it particularly those who use in their adolescence there have been a number of studies that show the association the association is really quite strong at this point and one of the issues is that as uh the um you know as as the laws are changing and cannabis is becoming really um uh, more um more ordinary uh Nor- it, normalized more, it's more normalized, normalized more commonplace um Going along with that, we're seeing more products uh, that are entering the marketplace. And we said at the beginning, you know, addiction is is a good business model, right? So, what's what's happening is that the the business of cannabis is turning these products into stronger, more potent uh, versions uh, of itself. Um, In fact, a lot of the things that people now call marijuana. Aren't actually marijuana, right? You know, so for example, um, a lot of the kids who come to treatment to the substance use disorders program that I run, uh, they're they're vaping. Uh, They'll say that they use marijuana, but when you ask them what they're doing, they're actually vaping oils uh, that are concentrated THC that have been extracted from cannabis. Now, you know, I don't think anybody twenty years ago or thirty years ago would have called that using marijuana, right? <laughs> That's actually really um, you know, a, a, a very um, evolved product. But so what's happening is uh, we're seeing these more concentrated products come out. They're inevitably more addictive. That makes them better in the marketplace, makes them better sellers. But it also makes them more dangerous. It makes them more addictive, for sure. And it makes them also um, th- th- more harmful, right? So it, all of the harms um, that, Oh, uh, that we know that are associated with it, with uh, marijuana use, things like uh, the relationship with mental health. The the more potent the product is, the more likely we are to see those harms. And we know that we're seeing it. Uh, you know, we're seeing it in our program. We're seeing more and more kids come to the hospital after using cannabis with what we call an acute psychotic reaction, right? So that they um, develop a thought disorder. Um, that's related to their cannabis use. A lot of these kids, I mean, the good news is a lot of kids will get better over time. Uh, the bad news is not all of them. You know, some of them will um, will go on to have a thought disorder for the rest of their lives. Um, others will get better, but we're actually very worried about what's going to happen to them in the long term.
0: It's It's really hard. I don't think that Message is out in the medical community at large. I I don't. I don't think my colleagues in in emergency medicine or in the house of medicine in in general—they'll just say, "Oh, you know, that 19-year-old has schizophrenia," and never mind that they're, you know, heavily using um, cannabis products of any sort. Um, They dismiss that and just say, "Oh, they have schizophrenia." And and I don't think that message is it has gone through the medical community. What do you? I don't know if you're seeing that. If if you're if the Harvard doctors are more enlightened.
1: No, you know, actually, it's an interesting question because I was meeting with one of our partner uh, primary care practices or so pediatricians this morning, and actually. Uh, One of the things I heard from them, we were just about to finish our call and one of the pediatricians said, you know, I I just heard this morning that that kids who use marijuana are more likely to develop a thought disorder. So she actually brought it up just this morning. So I do think that... um, that the message needs to get out there. I think it's incumbent upon us. It's incumbent upon the field of addiction medicine and uh, addiction psychiatry to really make sure that people understand um, it's starting with the medical field is a great place to start um, and making sure that that filters down to uh, parents and and young people. I think, you know, we look to different specialties
0: for certain messages, right? You know, we, we, like, we look to the OBGYNs when it comes to, you know, health in, in pregnancy, right? And we look to the cardiologists for cardiac health. Um, I think we we do look to pediatricians um, when it comes to, you know, the developing brain. Um, and I think if the, the pediatric community got that message out, it would resonate really well with the rest of the house of medicine. But I just, I just don't see that. in and I see cases probably like every single day and more than one a day. Of people who come to the emergency department and they're there um, not just for a few hours. They're there for a few days in our emergency department with uh, a, a psychotic episode. And they screen positive for marijuana. Everybody knows they're using marijuana. And that
1: association is not made. Yeah, I think we need to do a better job. Uh, I think the information is getting out there. I, I yeah. just, I, I, we I, and I think productions like this one can be really helpful. I hope a lot of people hear it and now, you know learn this piece of information. Um, I would say that ultimately the information will get out there, right? So it took yeah. more than fifty years for the association between smoking and lung cancer to be really established, and so that everybody believed it. A hundred years, yeah, right? I, you know, and it's. It's it's very sad that it takes that long because, you know, you, how many people were lost uh, in the meantime. So the faster we can do it, the better. But these things, um, they do get out there eventually. One thing that worries me a little bit when it comes to talking about mental health disorders is that they can be a little bit more hidden. So... For lung cancer, everybody who has lung cancer is ultimately going to see a doctor and going to have a diagnosis and a tissue diagnosis. And so it's very objective. But they were smoking for years before that came up,
0: right? And people said, oh, well, that's not associated. They just got cancer. That cigarette didn't cause it.
1: Uh, it, Right. So things that happen that take a long time to happen are harder to make the association, right? So, and it's one of the reasons that it took so long. But one of the things that was in the favor of finding the, the causal relationship was that we had a very objective Diagnosis. They had a tissue diagnosis when somebody has lung cancer. We don't have that with mental health disorders. We have very clear diagnostic criteria, but I think they're not, you know, they can be more easily missed or misunderstood or misinterpreted. Um, and in some cases, they may be missed entirely, um, you know, particularly, I, I think, less so with psychotic disorders that really dramatically alter people's behavior. Um, although I think an acute psychotic reaction that passes may be missed. Um, But I think even more so with things like depression and anxiety, I I think that those kinds of problems can really be missed. It can be really hard to get the, the, the data. And so it it makes it even more of a challenge when we're talking about the impact of substance use on mental health, you know, to remember that um, it's even more of a challenge. Right. And so I I think again, that puts more pressure on us to really understand these things and get these messages out. So when you, when you see patients in your
0: clinic and, and they're, they're using cannabis, they have psychosis, um, do you give them the diagnosis of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder or do you wait for them to be, you know, drug free and then assess
1: before you they get that label? Well, yeah, that would depend on the clinical situation, but um, typically if somebody is um, developing psychotic symptoms that's related, it's their very first time and it's related to substance use, yeah, we would uh, we would not give a diagnosis at that point. We would see where things go, right? Well,
0: and what if it's multiple times? Yeah, I mean, again, but, but, they're, still, the, but they're still using. Can you can it? Can the two coexist, or is is it? I, I imagine it's hard to say both unless you've seen one without the other.
1: Yeah, I think it really very much depends on the clinical situation. So I would hesitate to give an overall answer. I I, I think it's just depends on the specifics. But here's a piece of information uh, that might be interesting to people. We did a study at our hospital um, where we surveyed kids who were coming in for primary care. So they were just coming in for their regular checkup. We recruited a group of 500 of them. And one of the questions we asked is whether they had used um, cannabis in the past year. And for people who said yes, um, we asked them if they had ever had an hallucination while they were using cannabis, or um, a uh, par- experienced paranoia or, or anxiety while they were using cannabis. And stunningly, twenty five percent of kids told us that they had had an hallucination while they were high on cannabis, and a third of the kids who uh, said that they had paranoia and or anxiety while they were using. So when we put those two together. 42 percent of the kids were reported at least one psychotic symptom while they were using cannabis that's a really stunning number none of these kids had a diagnosis of uh, uh, of a mental health disorder these were just normal kids who were walking in and out no, none of them had medical records that suggested that they had any of these things a lot of this is really flying underneath the radar and it's important because you know if we think about really what's happening when somebody experiences something like an hallucination, basically uh, some part of the brain is, is being poisoned by the cannabis. Right. And that's causing the hallucination now for, for, mm, mm, uh, in many instances, the brain is going to recover, right. And the symptom goes away, but it's not actually that long a jump to understand how we can go from uh, somebody who's, Experiencing uh, an hallucination because their brain is being temporarily poisoned to somebody who's now got a thought disorder because those cells are now not functioning at all and are not coming back or not recovering.
0: Yeah, yeah, makes sense, right? You use a cigarette once, that's okay, it hurt your lung a little bit, but you keep using it and then now you got a cancer. So, right, you used it once and you had an episode of hallucination or paranoia, keep doing it and now you got schizophrenia.
1: Right. And just, you know, and it was really, it, it, we published the data. That, this was data that the minute it came out of the data analysis, Um, you know, the team looked at each other and said, we've got to publish this right away. And we this was the one of the first papers that we put out of the study, because people really need to know, I mean, 42% of kids were saying that they experienced one of these symptoms. That's like, that's very remarkable.
0: And and uh, another one of the statistics that I saw um, that you presented was if you used cannabis more than 50 times, that your odds ratio of having permanent schizophrenia went up to like seven, sevenfold.
1: Right. So that was in one particular study and it's a little bit older now, but it was very interesting because um, it was a study done in Sweden where they have a mandatory military draft for men, or at least they did when the study was done. Um, And so they had an entire birth cohort, and I think they had about 40,000 individuals in the study. Now they had, Actually, very few um, uh, men who were what they called heavy users would use more than fifty times. Uh, But those who fell in that group had more than seven times the odds of having—I think it was schizoaffective disorder, which is a related psychotic disorder. So you know that's that's a a very high, um, obviously a a huge increase in the amount of uh, psychosis. You know, it's in line with other studies that have all found increases in psychosis among people who were heavy cannabis users. The reason I sometimes pull that study out, and it's getting a little bit old now, is for whatever reason, they, they decided that 50 times in the lifetime would be what they would consider heavy use. I think the number was a little bit arbitrary you know, to me, it sounds like a big number. 50 sounds kind of like a lot. Um, but if you think about it, really, <laughs> but it was probably 50 times of
0: low potency stuff. That's also right? probably
1: true, right? Because this <laughs> yeah. is an older study. And when you think yeah. about what does 50 mean, you know, it could be once a month throughout high school, right? High school is four years. You got 48 months right there. right? So, you know, so, you know, when people say to me, well, I only use once a month, I think, oh, I don't know. I, I cannot say based on the literature, I cannot say that there's any lower limit um, that I could say, well, yeah, that's probably going to be safe. There isn't. It's just like we tell women who are pregnant. There's no lower limit of alcohol consumption uh, that we know to be safe for pregnant women regarding the fetus. I think it's the same thing with cannabis use in the developing adolescent brain. Right. Or any drug use sure. in the
0: developing brain, not adolescent, till 25.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for
0: counting <laughs>
1: on that. I agree with you.
0: Right any any just keep keep protect that brain so how bad and, and is it i suspect it may be growing problem is, is it of substance use with kids we know that during covid kids were at home and substance use decrease but but uh, 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 how's your addiction business um for kids uh, uh you know we we you're kind of like a dentist we don't want you to have a job uh, we <laughs> don't want people to and i say that because my husband's a, a dentist but we don't want kids you know we don't we don't want people to have cavities we don't want people to have addiction and to need your services but um are your services more needed now
1: yeah so that's a complex question our um So our program uh, got a a huge increase in the number of patients coming in um, in the mid-2010s, somewhere around 2015, 2016, when the vaping epidemic really took off in youth. And it hasn't really slowed down. Um, But to put this in perspective, um, what we saw during the pandemic is fewer kids initiated substance use, and that's a good thing. And the rates of vaping, which were skyrocketing, they started to flatten a little bit. So we have fewer kids who are initiating nicotine use, um, and um, it, those numbers are still very high. We have less teen drinking, less teen binge drinking, um, and um, uh, uh, cannabis use has remained pretty flat throughout. You know, throughout it, it hasn't really budged much. So the results are really mixed. I think the issue is that we it's wonderful that we had fewer kids start using substances. That's really good news. It's good news for the future. The kids who were already using substances before the pandemic, many of them escalated because for many of them substance use was their primary strategy for releasing anxiety, st- stress and tension. And boy, the pandemic really brought that on, right? So we at the same time we had fewer youths using substances, but we had more youths using substances heavily and more developing substance use disorders. Um, so, you know, really what we're seeing is is that the population is becoming really more and more bipolar. That is actually a trend that had been going on for some time before the pandemic. The pandemic accelerated that a little bit. And so we have a lot more kids who really need a lot of care around their substance use at this point. And and what's the the the
0: main drug that you you're seeing in your in your practice?
1: Okay. well, numbers one, two and three are always, for time immemorial, um, alcohol, nicotine and cannabis, not necessarily in that order. The most common substance use disorder we see in the program is probably cannabis use disorder with nicotine close behind. They are usually number one and number two. Um, And for most kids who come into our program, it's it's they're using both. It's it's dual use. Uh, Alcohol use disorder is is a third. I mean, although it's the most common substance used by kids, um, cannabis and nicotine use disorders are actually more common. Makes sense.
0: And what, you know, there's a huge, you know, national push to push harm reduction. What's the role for harm reduction in kids? I mean, we're trying to protect the drain. Should we, do you say you don't know, use less, or, or yeah. here's some here's some clean crack pipes, or <laughs> yeah.
1: It, yeah? So it's it, this is a really great question. It's so important. It's so confusing, and it's really important for people to really kind of sit down and understand this. So, I'm an addiction medicine specialist, and I absolutely understand the role of harm reduction because there are people with addictions who cannot or do not want to stop using substances, and for them decreasing the harms that are associated with their substance use is absolutely appropriate. On the other end of the spectrum, we have primary prevention, right? And that is uh, preventing kids from using substances in the first place and encouraging kids who are sporadic users who just tried it once or twice to stop. So harm reduction would be Uh, inappropriate for that population, for the younger kids who have never used or who have only started using. We don't want to do harm reduction for them. We want to do primary prevention for them. Just as primary prevention strategies strategies Would be completely inappropriate for people with addiction. If you tell somebody who's addicted to heroin to just say no, that's not going to be a very successful strategy, right? So we have to really understand these groups as different populations with different strategies applied to them.
0: Oh, that's beautifully said. Thank you, Sharon. That's beautiful. And I think that 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 and that and you're right. That message is con, con, confusing because well, oh, we got to do harm reduction now, but not not for kids. And I've heard people say, well, kids are going to use drugs anyway, so let's just teach them how to use it safely. And it's like, you know, no, not for a nine year old. <laughs> yeah, no, it,
1: not not for an under 25 or 27 year old. And then, right, not it, for it, the growing brain, right. And and actually, you know, the idea that kids are going to use substances anyway is really a cultural message. And it comes to us from people who sell these substances, right? I mean, it's it's not it, it is true that the adolescent brain um it, the young person's brain drives young people to take risks and, and do, you know, get involved in extreme behaviors. Like we've seen extreme sports and skydiving That's, you know, really more for younger people than for older people. Um, and that's because um, the, the the stage of development, um, you know, during the teens and early 20s really drives people to look for excitement and take risks. But the risks that they take will be based on what the society makes available. So if we make alcohol and cannabis and nicotine easily available, those will be the risks that they take. Um, but if we don't, if we have strict laws and regulations and policies that really keep younger people away from these substances, believe me, there are lots of other places to take risks, and they will find them. Right? And and you know those you know it's it's obviously much more healthy um, you know to you know go climb a mountain than it is to um, use cannabis, right? My, my so daughter, my daughter that. wants
0: to jump out of an airplane. So yeah. it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay I,
1: I don't know what to say about that. <laughs>
0: I don't know. I mean, like, sky, sky, you know, um, paratroops. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I know. Um, I know so. that the army teaches people how to do that. But um, right. And, you know, your daughter wants to, I'm going to guess you don't want to, right? Because the- well, I I'd say it's like, I don't know. I, I mean, it's,
0: I'm scared of it. But I, if she wants to do it, and it's a controlled you know thing then I guess
1: it's okay oh right no for her but I mean for you you probably oh, no, you, I, I wouldn't probably have no interest <laughs> in it right because right. for you that door has closed <laughs> right and that's that's it's again it's the same thing um with substance use it's like the door closes at some point becomes much less interesting you
0: have a great way of of talking or explaining how to talk to um, a, a young person who's in denial. It's like, well, you know, I'm using marijuana. I use it to relax. It's not a problem. Um, you know, every, people are using, everybody's using it. How do you get through to somebody who's in, in such denial and and is supported by, um, you know, the, the media that's around them in, in that
1: thought? We approach kids with a lot of understanding and uh, just try and figure out what they're situation is, right? And so it's actually interesting because when we do these clinical interviews, I have colleagues who say to me, how do you get young people to open up and talk to you? And I said, oh, no, that's not the right question. The right question is, how do you get them to stop at the end of your hour? <laughs> <laughs> they don't really want to go on and on. You find that if you approach kids with understanding and curiosity and tell me your story, um, that they, they really open up. And I think part of uh, working with Young people who have substance use disorders is understanding um, what's promoting the substance use for them, right? So, somebody who tells me I only use to relax, um, you don't want to understand more about that, right? So, how do you, are you having trouble relaxing otherwise? Are there things that are making you tense or anxious that feels like you need to have something help you relax? You try and dig into their story a little bit and um, hear them talk about it. And, you know, I think it's really important if we have somebody whose only tool for stress management is to use marijuana, you know, we're really going to have to address that before they'll be able to be successful in reducing their marijuana use or stopping their marijuana use, right? And so really kind of getting in there, understanding, understanding what it means, what um, what a young person sees as as, as driving the use and, and what the cons of use are, right? And almost everybody has them. And sometimes they're hidden in the language so you can't see them. So, you know, the kids will walk in and say, well, you know, of course I don't use on school nights. Say, oh, okay, tell me why not? You know, wh- what is it, you know, what is it about the cannabis that makes you, does it make you feel like you can't function as well when you're using it? To make you feel like you're not thinking as clearly? Like just to explore that a little and have them, Uh, Think through it. A lot of times this is also promoted in the media that a lot of times people themselves, just the kids themselves, they they haven't really thought through. So so having them slow it down and think about those questions can sometimes in itself be very helpful to, to, to start them thinking about their own behavior. That's a really good
0: tip. I'm actually going to use that my next shift. It's a, it's motivational interviewing, and I've taken some lessons in that, but I, you could always get better at it. And I'm going to try that. One of the common things, oh, you just use a gummy bear to get to sleep. So next, my next patient, I'm going to say, well, you know, what happens if you don't have that to sleep? I'm going to I'm going to use that.
1: Yeah, and is, is, is it hard for you to get to sleep? Tell me more about your sleep. I want to hear about it, right? That's amazing. I always
0: learn. Um, thank you so much. Uh, what is your advice to Sarah,
1: two kids and uh, wants to protect them? Oh, so I, um, so actually I love it when parents of young children are asking questions about how do I talk to my kids about substances? Cause it means they're really thinking about it. And so I'm going to advise you to uh, don't be afraid to talk to them. Don't be afraid to bring it up. Um, and, Whatever you do, be really clear with them about your expectations and about your house rules. It, it makes a big difference, and you can do it without being uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, authoritarian, right? Um, it can be a conversation, and the conversation will change as your kids grow and develop, and be, you'll, you'll make it more developmentally appropriate.
0: Yeah. And I want to say thank you, too. Thank you, Sarah. I so appreciate your question. And uh, like Dr. Levy, I love that you have this prevention mentality. Um, It's best to ask the questions now when your kids are 7 and 10 rather than later in high school. And so I just want you to continue enriching your children's neuronal pathways with flag football and softball and reading and fun. And remember, most kids actually don't use drugs And I also want a special shout out to Sarah Because when the pandemic hit And most people were stuck at home uh, Sarah was busy sewing hats to medical providers And making masks And she sent a a bunch of them to my emergency department I still wear my hat every day And she even sewed little buttons on the sides of the hat So my mask would go over that instead of my ears So I, I, I love my Sarah hats Thank you And uh, I want to say thank you to Dr. Sharon Levy, a world expert and leader in pediatric addiction. Please continue to educate the medical and public community on the harms of drugs while promoting both prevention and treatment.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors, a sincere and warm thank you to NMI, the National Marijuana Initiative, striving to dispel misconceptions about marijuana so citizens and policymakers can make well-informed choices. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.